0: Beloved, please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark in chapter 1. Uh, This evening we'll be looking at verses 21 through 34. Please stand uh, for the reading of God's holy word. If I can ask to be turned up just a little bit on the mic, please. My voice is, uh, it's been a long day of teaching. (laughs) Thank you. If I start getting excited, you can turn me down. Uh, I give you permission to do that. Mark chapter 1 and uh, beginning in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would illumine our hearts and minds so that this word doesn't go in one ear and out the other or bounce off of a hard heart. We pray, Lord, that your word by your Spirit would be implanted in our hearts, would be etched upon our minds and our consciences, that you would lead us to Christ, who is salvation, that you would convict us of our sin. Uh, that we would turn from it and look with singularity upon our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we focused our thoughts on Christ and the calling of the first four disciples who were fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Those disciples were Simon, who was also called Peter, his brother Andrew, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. These ordinary men were called by Christ into an intense mentoring relationship in order that they would become fishers of men. Uh, They were called away from being uh, actual uh, fishermen, uh, seeking fish, uh, to being fishers of men, that is, heralds of the good news of the gospel of God, exhorting everyone to repent and to believe in Jesus the Messiah, to receive the salvation that is In him. The story picks up uh, this evening in Capernaum, a small town on the upper northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Verse 21 states that they, that is Jesus and the four disciples, entered a synagogue in Capernaum on the Sabbath. Uh, The word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which simply means seven. It simply means seven. The Sabbath day was the seventh day of the week following the old covenant law. We find this, of course, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. It was to be a day set apart, a day to be kept holy, uh, to rest from weekly labors, and to be a day of concentrated worship with the covenant people of God. Uh, this day, uh, of course, has been lost on many uh, modern. Uh, evangelical-ish Christians. Uh, the day has become sort of a, a Saturday uh, with church in the morning. Uh, no different than Saturday, but just with church uh, in the morning. Sort of the hour of power, and we're going to give the other however many thousands of hours there are uh, in a month to uh, to other things. Uh, and so uh, it's, it, what we read in the Bible is that it's uh, the Sabbath day. It's It's the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's uh, hour, it's not the Lord's morning, it's the Lord's day. And so uh, we've always sought to have the day bookended with worship in order to help God's people to keep it as an, uh, together as a day and a day of worship and discipleship. The synagogue uh, that they walked into, this would have been a center of worship and learning for the committed Jew. The worship that Jesus and the disciples engaged in would have included prayers, the reading and preaching of the Bible, the singing of psalms, and a benediction. Does that sound familiar? The ancient worship of the Jewish synagogues is not so much different than what we do uh, in our worship services. In our passage, we see that Christ was given the opportunity uh, to expound on the Word on this particular occasion. This duty would have fallen to Uh, mature, godly men uh, within the synagogue. And so he was chosen to do this. Now, how did those uh, who heard Jesus' teaching react to it? Again, we are learning here about our Savior. Remember last week, I believe it was last week, I said that Jesus is not just a doctrine. He's a person, a person to be known and loved and to have communion with and to pour our souls out to and to abide in. Uh, Jesus is precious. He's, he is, he's lovely. He's altogether lovely. Uh, we keep our eyes on him, and, and, uh, and we need to know him. And so we're getting to know him in the gospel of Mark. And, and here is Jesus, and he's, he's, he's preaching the word of God. And, and it's interesting to see how people reacted to him. Verse 22 states that they were astonished, They were astonished. In the Greek text, this word could also be translated awestruck or amazed. They were amazed. They were astonished by his teaching. The point is, those who were sitting before him, those who assembled on that Sabbath, heard teaching that, in modern parlance, blew them away. Why? Because it was authoritative. It was was authentic. It was teaching that came straight from the mouth of the Son of God, as he interpreted in the very prophets of the Old Covenant that he himself spoke through in centuries past. Jesus' teaching was not like that of the scribes and, uh, and the Pharisees, which was lifeless, going through the motions. Christ taught in a way that passionately conveyed his conviction and belief that what he was teaching, what he was saying, was truly the Word of God. As Jesus read and preached the Word, the people were astonished. As the assembly sat on the edge of uh, their seats, as it were, they listened to Jesus teach. And then, suddenly, or as the text says, and it said many, many times, immediately, a man entered the room who was possessed by an evil spirit. Uh, now I'm trying to think if this has ever happened uh, to me. I don't think it, it, it has. Um, uh, there have, you know, overseas in third world countries, you have some pretty interesting things that happen uh, during worship services. I remember one uh, evening uh, in uh, Peru uh, in a very poor church, uh, two dogs got into the church and they started fighting during the middle of my sermon. Uh, and what was crazy was everyone just kept looking at me as if there was nothing going on was like, well, we're just used to this. Just keep going. We just ignore this kind of thing. You know, you think you get distracted when a baby, like, coos or something during a service. Wow, how about fighting dogs? Uh, That'll distract you. But here, you can imagine that Jesus is teaching. The people are astonished. And then walking through the door is this person uh, who is possessed by an evil spirit. This man then cried out. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Interesting, uh, the, uh, uh, the plural nature of this statement. Us, us, this, this, this person is possessed perhaps by more than one. We don't know. It says an evil spirit, uh, but what have you to do with us? Uh, maybe a collective statement about the, all the evil spirits that are around or there, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Jesus then rebuked the unclean spirit and performed an exorcism, commanding the evil spirit to come out of the man. Why, is there so ma- Why are there so many evil spirits possessing people during this time? Remember what Jesus said earlier on in this book. This is the fullness of time. The kingdom of God is at hand the one who is being predicted, foretold, foreshadowed, prophesied about, promised in the old covenant for centuries is now here. He is he is performing his public ministry in order to save the elect. All hell is breaking loose. Quite literally. We use that term in our day and it's just like inaccurate. All hell was actually breaking loose in this in this this moment in history. And so evil spirits are possessing people, and and here is this demon saying, we know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. So Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. He commands the spirit to come out, and after much convulsing and screaming, the spirit left the man, and all those who saw it were amazed. Verse 27 tells us what some in attendance said. Look there with me, verse 27. What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits. And they obey him. They obey him. There's a battle happening. But Christ is always the one who is in charge. You need to remember that. Even as he goes and he, in his passive obedience, submits himself to the will of God and is arrested and betrayed and put on the cross, it's not as if he is not in charge. What does he say to Peter when Peter lops off the ear of the soldier? Put your sword away. Don't you know that I could call forth 12 legions of angels? How many angels destroyed the 180 uh, Assyrians? One. Jesus said, "Put your sword away, Peter. Don't you know that I could call forth 72,000 angels like this? Our Lord is always in control. There's a battle going on, but the Lord is in control and he is sovereign over, These evil spirits, he is sending them away. Shortly uh, after this, we see that his fame is spreading everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. We see that in verse 28. Then, shortly thereafter, Jesus and his four disciples, uh, they uh, went to Simon and Andrew's house for food and fellowship, much like today. Uh, The main meal on the Sabbath uh, takes place at the noon hour. And so when they arrived... Uh, Simon's mother-in-law was unwell. She was sick with a fever. They, they immediately told Jesus about the fever, and we are told that Jesus walked right up to her, took her by the hand, and lifted her up from the bed, and the fever left her. Peter's mother-in-law then, uh, without batting an eye, commenced serving her dinner guests. This is extraordinary, uh, and it says something really wonderful, doesn't it? That uh, the Lord brings the healing and the service to the Lord's uh, begins immediately. Because the word had spread about Jesus' healing power, many people came to the door of Simon's house at sundown uh, when the Sabbath had ended and sought healing from sickness and demon possession. Word was spreading, hey, I can get healed, I can be freed from these demons, so people began to gather. Verse 34 states, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak, Because they knew him. He didn't want these evil spirits to be the ones spreading the news about who he was. He was spreading the news about who he was. And he would not permit them to speak. And it was not yet time for him uh, to be uh, fully known in his person and in his status as well. And we'll learn more about that in due time. Now, this was certainly as I've entitled this, A Sabbath to Remember. It was a Sabbath to remember. I'm sure that uh, these four disciples uh, weren't expecting uh, such an eventful Sabbath when they woke up uh, that morning. But rather than just simply skimming the surface uh, of this narrative, let's see uh, what we can learn uh, as we dig a little deeper. The first thing we cannot help but see in this text is a true picture of the devastation of sin. Don't we see a true picture of the devastation of sin in this world uh, as we consider this text? When God created mankind, as we consider this morning, He placed Him in the garden where there was no sin, no sickness, no suffering at all. It was a place where God and man walked in perfect harmony. There wasn't danger from the animals. Uh, There weren't... Uh, plagues there. There weren't uh, tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis. Uh, no, Adam and Eve joyfully and perfectly lived in this paradise, submitted to God's will in their hearts, minds, affections, and wills. In the Garden of Eden, God made a covenant with Adam. Some call this the covenant of works; others call it the covenant of life. Uh, this uh, language should be familiar, right, to the kids who study their catechisms. This, Covenant of works was made between uh, God and, and Adam, and thus all of uh, humanity. The stipulations of this covenant were as follows. Continue in perfect and personal obedience to God's law and live forever with God in paradise, you and your posterity. Or give in to temptation, disobey God's law, and bring upon yourself and your posterity the curse of And misery of sin and the wrath of God and judgment. In Genesis 3, we read what happens. Adam and Eve gave in to this temptation and to the lies of the devil, and they sinned against God, breaking his law. You remember what the devil said uh, to Eve. Did God really say? Did he really say this? And we see uh, essentially a covenant being made with the evil one in this. Rejecting God's covenant and embracing a covenant with the devil to believe his word and to believe uh, and to walk in his ways. Well, uh, we see uh, this curse and misery uh, uh, in the scriptures, and we see it bearing the effects uh, in this passage before us. We see the effects of this curse. A man possessed by an evil spirit, Simon's mother-in-law, bedridden with a fever, a host of individuals from Capernaum and perhaps the surrounding districts coming to Simon's door for healing and exorcism. It's the state of the world. It doesn't take us long to see the curse and misery of sin here in this text or in our own lives. We see and even often experience great pain, sickness, and suffering because of uh, the Internet, because of the, the, the video, we can see immediately of things happening around the world, the, uh, the terrorists uh, in, in Israel. Um, uh, it's, it's extraordinary, the wickedness and the evil that we see all over the world. This is the result of the fall. Many of you this evening know exactly... What I'm talking about, for even at this very moment, you feel the great weight of the suffering that this world brings. It might have to do with loved ones or your job or illness, but we feel the effects of sin. And often people wonder, even Christians, why they are suffering as they do, Part of the answer to this question lies in the fall of mankind into sin and the subsequent curse and misery of sin that resulted from it. For the wages of sin is death. And we experience that in this this life. Not only are we the inheritors of Adam's guilt, but we ourselves are completely responsible for willful, rebellious, and self-seeking disobedience against God and His Word. Listen to what the Westminster Confession says in chapter 6 and paragraph 6. Every sin, both original and actual, that is the sin we've inherited from Adam and the sin that we do as a result of that, being a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary thereunto, contrary to the word of God, does in its own nature... Bring guilt upon the sinner, whereby he is bound over to the wrath of God and curse of the law, and so made subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. It's the way that uh, this is um, categorized. There are miseries that are spiritual, temporal, and eternal for those who are outside of Christ and in their sin. Mankind's spiritual struggle, mental and emotional anguish, and physical suffering finds its roots in mankind's fall into and love affair with sin and the curse and wrath of God in response to it. But we are here this evening because this is not the end of the story. This is not the end of the story. We have gathered for public worship this evening because... The answer to all of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this glorious answer to all of this never gets old. The story never gets old. Tell me again the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ was sent into this world to forgive sin and heal the sick and bind up the brokenhearted and bring complete restoration and redemption to His People, that is, those who by grace through faith have believed in Him. And this leads to point number two, a true picture of the divine authority of Jesus Christ. Notice with me how Jesus' teaching is described twice in this passage as teaching with authority, verse 22 and verse 27. It's teaching with authority. As mentioned earlier, Jesus' teaching was contrasted with the teaching of the scribes. Although we are not given any details here, we can assume that the teaching of the scribes was some form of dead orthodoxy where a, a string of quotations from past Jewish scholars was set forth, and in and a, uh, and, uh, and a very real sense that leaders were just going through the motions uh, here. When Jesus stood up to teach, however, the congregation had the overwhelming sense that something different was happening, something different was taking place. This was not the normal lesson from the Old Testament. There was a freshness, a a directness, a sincere zeal that accompanied Christ's words. But what the listeners may not have realized at the time was that the special something that they were experiencing during Christ's teaching was more than just good pedagogy, more than than just good teaching techniques. Christ's teaching was authoritative and unlike the teaching of the scribes because he was and is God in the flesh. Secondly, he was teaching and preaching the Word of God correctly. And thirdly, his teaching was attended by the Holy Spirit. So since Christ was present and God's Word and Spirit were at work, Sabbath worship had become so much more than a formalistic routine. Rather, it was an encounter with the living God. And this is how we, if we were to apply this today, want to approach the public worship of God its an encounter with God. And it is, it's an, there's an expectation there about what He will do in our lives and in the lives of one another here in the church. Do we have this holy expectation? Is, is public worship just a formality? Or do we come saying, Lord, work in me that which is pleasing in your sight? I come with expectation of what you will do in my life. May this be be true of us. John Mark, uh, the author of this gospel, establishes Christ's authority uh, from the outset of his narrative. We've seen that already. It's not surprising them that the first miracle recorded in Mark's story of Jesus is an exorcism since he is seeking in his gospel to exhibit Jesus as the one who had come to break the chains of sin, to destroy the powers of darkness, and purchase redemption for sinners. Christ was interrupted by this demon-possessed man who began shouting, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Christ tells the unclean spirit to be silent and then shows his divine power over evil by ordering the unclean spirit to come out of this man. Isn't it interesting that this demon spoke to Jesus with such familiarity? You see, the powers of darkness... They knew exactly who Jesus was, and all hell had broken loose due to an attempt to stop Him from accomplishing the mission that His Father had given to Him. They knew that Jesus was the long-expected Messiah. They wanted to trip Him up. They wanted to destroy Him. To show Christ's awesome power, it is simply with His authoritative word that the demon must flee. It reminds us of that great hymn penned by Martin Luther in 1529, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, where he writes, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. There's a wonderful biography on Martin Luther, uh, written by a man named Heiko Heiko Obermann. And it's called Luther... Man Between God and the Devil, and when you read this biography, you see it's just the perfect title because Luther recognized this kind of epochal time he was living in during the days of the Protestant Reformation and that, in a sense, hell was stirred up in a way then that it is not usually stirred up. And Luther did see himself as a man between God and the devil. And in a sense, we need to be reminded, particularly in our materialistic culture, that we too are men and women between God and the devil. The devil is real. He's seeking to destroy us, to trip us up, to attack us in all different kinds of ways. And there is God whom we trust, who we know has us. But the devil is real and, and, and we are to put on the armor of God and we are to recognize that the battle that we fight is not a physical battle, it's a spiritual battle. We are wrestling not with f- flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 says, but with the powers of darkness. It's one thing I love about Reformed preaching. It's what I love about Reformational preaching. It's not focusing on... Therapeutics and life coach, life coaching and and um, uh, the ten things you need to do to be a successful American. You know these kinds of sermons that you hear. This is this is preaching about hell and heaven and Satan and God and angels and demons and and these things that are so much more significant and important when it comes to our lives here on earth than the things that we put so much focus on. Like who Taylor Swift is dating, right? What in the world? It's like on everybody's minds. Here I am talking about it in my sermon. But these are the things that people are caught up in. Not in the eternal things, the things that really matter, the things that really count. The devil is trying to distract us away uh, from, from the Lord. But one little word. Jesus says one little word and the demon has to flee. This is always true. What we must understand here is that this word that Christ speaks to the unclean spirit And the word that he spoke to Peter's sick mother-in-law. And the word that he spoke in the case of all of those who came to Peter and Andrew's door that night. Who sought freedom from the bondage of the devil and healing from sickness. All, by the way, taking place on the Sabbath. Was a glorious glimpse. A foretaste of the eternal Sabbath. When God will end the sin, pain, and suffering of his people. It's a foretaste of this. This took place on the Sabbath. This same word that Christ spoke to free these people from demon possession and to to bring healing to Peter's mother-in-law, that that authoritative, powerful word he spoke in the synagogue is the same word that we have here before us this evening. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. Christ. Oh, pastor, the words of Christ, those are just the ones in red. Don't you know that? What's wrong with you? Those are the really authoritative words in the Bible. No. A proper understanding of the Scriptures is that this entire Bible is the word of Christ. It's all the word of Christ. Indeed, Christ, 1 Peter 1 says, was speaking through the prophets in the Old Testament about himself. The Spirit of Christ through the Old Testament prophets. This is the Word of Christ. And we have this same Word. And this this Word that was spoken brought all of these blessings. And it's all a foretaste of the eternal Sabbath. This is the third point, a true picture of the eternal Sabbath. Jesus' healing on the Sabbath should be understood as a deliberate attempt to bring in the final Sabbath. Remember, Christ is bringing the kingdom. Remember what Jesus said in verse 15 of the same chapter. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That is, the kingdom of God was breaking into human history and the beginning of the end of all things is at hand. The beginning of the end of all things is at hand. There's a lot of talk going on right now about prophecy and the end of the world uh, because of what's going on in Israel. And it's the same. Anytime there's any kind of conflict going on in Israel, uh, this is obviously a heightened one, but there's always talk. Well, is this the end? Because there's war in Israel. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going there tonight. But I'll just say this, that what I believe, what our tradition and heritage has generally taught is that when Jesus said this, and he began his public ministry. You can even go back to his, his birth. When Jesus came, the time was fulfilled, and the kingdom of God was at hand, and he's bringing in the kingdom. And so that was the beginning of the end. And so Christ could return at any time. There doesn't need to be a war in Israel for Christ to return. He could return at any time. And we look for him to return uh, at any time. But here we see Christ healing on the Sabbath. And it demonstrates a kind of preview. You know you like to watch those movie previews, right? Hey, well, how's this movie going to be? And you watch the previews. Oh, boy, that looks great. We need to go see that. And then you go see it, and it's horrible. You're like, wait, that minute preview, that was, the, that was it. That was the only good stuff in the whole movie. It's horrible. And there are other previews you watch. Oh, well, that looks pretty good. I'm watching And then the movie's amazing. right? Well, what we have here is a kind of preview. Of what's going to happen in the eternal Sabbath. Because when we are translated on the day of resurrection to eternal glory, we are taught that God Himself will wipe away every tear from our eye. There will be no more death, no more backaches, no more headaches, no more disease, no more cancer. No more bad news. Just glory in the presence of God. Eternity with Christ, our Lord, who gave himself for us. Eternal joy with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will not have these things that are being described in this chapter. We will not have them anymore. We will have Christ. And this is what's being pictured here. Christ is... Is casting out demons and he's healing disease. And this is going to happen in full one day when he returns. And it's with one word that he will cast the devil and all of his demons and all of the wicked into the eternal lake of fire. We see this in Revelation 19 and 20. One little word shall fell him. The final destruction of evil is a familiar theme in our end times, infatuated evangelical culture. But what is less familiar is the idea of the eternal Sabbath, which needs to be at the very center of our faith and our piety. Again, the healing that took place on that memorable Sabbath day in Capernaum, these healings were, unlike a lot of the supposed healings of our own day, complete healings. One minute, Peter's mother-in-law was laying in bed with a fever, and the next, she was completely and utterly healed. Those with demons found total relief from those demons. The authority that Christ demonstrated on this occasion was a glimpse of the authority that will be seen and experienced by all in its fullest fullest measure at Christ's return. Though the final Sabbath rest will only be ushered in at Christ's return, We see here the beginnings of it on display. Christ is giving us a preview of what we will know in full. At present, as it says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But one day, when we enter the eternal Sabbath, the eternal Sabbath rest spoken of in Hebrews 4, we will experience perfect peace and rest, in an even greater manner than did Adam and Eve in the garden paradise. For unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, we will possess something much greater than original righteousness and the possibility of sin. We will receive and know and have, even as we do now in Christ, Christ's righteousness with no possibility of sin. Glory, hallelujah. We will, by grace through faith, robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, even as we are now, by grace through faith, we will stand before God justified and ushered into the eternal Sabbath. And so the hymn that we sang earlier speaks to this, Lord of the Sabbath, Hear us pray. Uh, it's a reminder that this Sabbath that we enjoy here on earth, as insignificant and as small as it seems to be compared to large stadium fulls uh, of large stadiums full of football fans, soccer fans, baseball fans, large concert venues filled up with tens of thousands of people. It's all, You know, we just seem so insignificant what we're doing here, but what we are doing has an eternal weight of glory that outshines and outweighs these contests in these stadiums by a thousand, a gazillion fold. And that's living by faith. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to eternal life. And so as we close, I want to exhort you and exhort my own heart to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. This day of worship and rest is so much more than just a day to go to church in the morning and take a nap in the afternoon and watch eight hours of football you do realize that the NFL has sought to take over Sunday completely. It's their entire media campaign. And Sunday, for Christians, is the day that Christ rose from the dead, which has more significance over which team won today or lost today. This is a day of worship. It's one day out of seven where we, as God's people, are visibly set apart from the world as Christ's disciples, as the people of God. This is one of the marks of the Christian. We're different than the world because we gather on the day that Christ rose from the dead, the first day of the week. The first day of the week when Christ and the Father poured out the Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost. It's one day out of seven in which we experience, through God-centered worship, fellowship, discipleship, ministry, and rest from our ordinary labors, a foretaste of, Of the eternal Sabbath. It is one day in seven where we are reminded in a concentrated way that at the second coming of Christ and the ushering in of the final Sabbath, every tear will be wiped away, every disease healed, every sorrow turned to joy, every selfish thought turned to a wholehearted passion for the glory of God. In this passage, we are shown that the Lord's Day or the Sabbath is so much more than another Saturday with church in the morning, but a special day where we are called to worship our God and receive His promises and abide in Christ and experience a foretaste of that wedding feast mentioned in Revelation 19. Keeping the Lord's Day holy is a way of life as we orient our week in preparation for and response to the word of Christ and the nourishment that we gain through our union with him. This is, as the Puritan says, a market day of the soul. It's the Costco of the soul. We go and we load up on the Lord's Day. We load up. And it's glorious. And finally, as we consider this, I want us to remember who wins. You know, life sometimes feels like Christ is losing and we're losing with him. Things don't seem to be going our way. You can imagine how the Christians in Rome must have struggled at times with fear and doubt and anxiety as Emperor Nero is feeding them to the lions in the Colosseum as entertainment Sometimes it feels like we're losing, but the important thing to remember in a text like this is that Jesus wins. It's the message of revelation, isn't it? Though we have brought upon ourselves great misery due to our sinful rebellion against God, we need to remember that Christ is the victor over sin. By sovereign grace, we embrace Him through faith. We trust in Him no matter what comes our way, no matter what challenges are there, we know that the Lord has us and Christ is the victor. Christus victor. One little word of Christ shall fell the evil one. Perhaps when we suffer in this life, our thinking ought to better reflect the fact that we have not yet entered the final Sabbath rest in glory. But each Lord's Day we gather as pilgrims on the way, as exiles and foreigners in a strange land, we we gather together in in, in what some have, have called an embassy of grace. We're like an an embassy. We all have our citizenships in heaven. And and when we're out in the world, we're in a place that that we are different, we're countercultural, we're not going with the flow. we're actually going against the flow, and it's hard and it's challenging. And then there's just the suffering in a world that is cursed, and we're dealing with death and, and disease and, and bad news. And, and so we're, we're going through all of this. but when we gather on the Lord's day, we are remembering to where we are going. We are remembering the place where we are headed the new heavens and the new earth, the promised land. And God spreads a table for us in the wilderness and he feeds us along the way. We are pilgrims in a, in, a, in a wilderness. And here in the wilderness, we give praise to God and we hear his word and we remind one another through our faithful worship that there is something better waiting for us something that the Son of God Himself purchased with His own blood and is preparing for us even now. My dear mother likes to ask me very difficult theological questions. And uh, the same ones usually come up every every couple years. And uh, she had called me this week and said, uh, John, I have a question for you. Oh, no. What's it going to be this time? And she said, um, Jesus said he was going to prepare a place for us and uh, that there are many mansions in heaven and he's going to give us a mansion. So what's that going to look like? Am I going to get a mansion? And, um, and before I could even answer, she said, my pastor said that that could be translated rooms as well. So you know, what is it, a room or a mansion? And uh, I said, mom, that's a really good question. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. There's, there's certainly a dwelling place that the Lord is preparing for us. And the most important thing is that that dwelling place will be with God. It'll be with Christ. I don't know if I'm going to have a queen-size bed or a king-size. I don't know. I don't know how, much, how many square feet the, the, the mansion will be or the room. But what I know is that I will be with Jesus. We will be with him, and that is where our dwelling will be. There is yet a Sabbath rest for the people of God. May our earthly Sabbaths be that which are preparing us and keeping us focused upon that eternal Sabbath to come. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word, for this wonderful reminder that Christ is the victor. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Uh, Lord, we get a preview of the eternal glory and Sabbath, even through Christ's ministry on earth, and we pray that as we see these miracles, as we see him casting out demons and healing disease and speaking authoritatively, uh, that we would have confidence in him, in his word, in his power, and in the grace that will be ours not just today, but, but tomorrow, future grace. Thank you that he who began a good work in us would be faithful to complete it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.